I just love feeding people. <laughs> I love the gesture of cooking. I, I, I love how food levels people. Didn't matter who Lady Gaga was either. You know, when she was eating like Marin and oysters with me at the table, you're the same person. It doesn't matter who you are. And that's what I, you know, I like about eating and food. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Taking a risk and backing yourself can create the most incredible experiences and opportunities. While working as a chef, Amy Hamilton stopped into Albany on the far tip of the south coast of Western Australia for what she thought was a quick visit. But realising its beauty and keen to find a greater connection, she rolled the dice and took a chance to build a restaurant of her own. Seven years on, and she's created one of Australia's most celebrated and unique regional restaurants. Amy, Albany is a long way from just about everywhere. What's it like running a restaurant in such a remote location? Um, rewarding, sometimes isolated. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, look, um, I've had Liberté for seven years now, um, which sometimes feels like forever. And sometimes it feels like, you know, a very short amount of time. So um, ultimately I don't feel like um, the story has ended for me yet. Um, there's definitely been challenges, but I think those challenges would be and are there with anyone that's running a restaurant. <laughs> there's often a romantic notion of when you have a restaurant in the country, you've got a real connection with local producers. Is, is that the case in Albany? Is there some great producers there that you connect with? Yeah, there's, there's definitely great producers. I mean, I've said this before, but the producers down here were definitely one of the catalysts for me, you know, realising and realising I could have a restaurant and kind of – tell my story down here. I, I really love and I engage often with the producers here and Liberté for me was always going to be uh, like a venue I could, you know, that would allow me to be a voice for those small producers. Are there any producers that you can tell us about that have been really integral in allowing you to share your vision on the plate? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the beauty of using small producers is that you can have a conversation with them and, you know, they can tailor what they do or to to work with your vision as well. So, you know, I can contact someone like Steve from Pecan Farms and um, say, you know, I want to use Serrano chilies. Um, how about it? And he'll go, yeah, okay, I'll grow a field of them for you or, you know, um, or he'll he'll message me and say, "Hey, I've got like a lot of this at the moment. Can you do something with it?" And um, absolutely. So you know, you tend to it, it creates um, it, it sometimes can it it generates like originality in the sense that you're kind of going, you're creating dishes based on what's available, which which is quite exciting. Do you have any connections with local? Um pig farmers uh, that you work with? So I've used um, – there's a couple of producers. So I've worked a lot with Lindley Valley Pork because um, I was a, a pork – I mean, before I was a pork star in 2018, um, 
you know, I, I've always been a fan of the product there. There's a farm in the Prongrups, um, free range farm that they've got up there, and I've always really liked the product. I've worked with um, the Gerovitches, who have um, they've been pig farmers for over thirty years, and they started off with Ray Gerovich, and now it's his son Ivan um, and wife Shannon, and they have Doctor Goodness free range pork, and yeah, and Plantagenet pork as well. Tell us about the Dr. Goodness um, pork. What, what is it that's so special about the environment that the pigs are in that makes the pork so good? Uh, it's just completely – they're completely free range and they will often get um, a lot of scraps from, you know, like the byproduct of other farming. So, you know, um, just really good quality vegetables and, you know, they're under carry trees and it's just – are just a pristine environment and I think that when that occurs that you know like any good product that that's in a good environment that's reflected in the quality of the meat. How important is pork in regards to what you do with that sort of French and Vietnamese influence on the menu that you have? Yeah well I've definitely used a lot of pork um, in different expressions throughout the years so I'm always really interested and excited by using uh, I suppose like the weight, not, not the waste products of pork, but like, you know, the cuts of pork that um, other people maybe don't want to use. And I've always had a bit of a ambition to kind of show people in Albany that these other parts of the pork can be really tasty. I mean, saying that I have had a, my pork belly dish has been on the menu for seven years and it's changed and it's, it's, <laughs> I can't take it off because I mean, obviously people love pork belly. So we have a lemongrass brined pork belly that we brine overnight. It's actually the, the recipe, the brine recipe was kind of, um, uh, comes from the to- Thomas Keller. Thomas Keller has a really great brine that he uses for his chicken, for his buttermilk fried chicken, and it's like a lemon and thyme brine. And so I kind of took the the idea of that and used lemongrass instead, um, fish and fish sauce in the brine. So we like brine the pork belly, press it overnight, and then fry it on its skin to order. And I've had that on since day one, and in, I think we've sold like – 12,000 serves of it. So that's about two tons of pork belly. And I've tried to put on other, I suppose, other cuts, um, but they've never been as successful because, you know, sometimes your customers really dictate what's on your menu more than you realise. Saying that, I've also, because we trim that pork up, one of the best dishes I did came from the waste of that product. So we would trim we trim it up into these like long kind of fingers and we'd often have all this kind of these edge bits left over with the skin. And so we'd take the meat and we use them in dumplings, the leftover scraps. But one day I was looking at the skin and I thought, this skin is such a nice texture because it's, you know, it's steamed but it's like slippery just like a noodle. So I thought, why don't I just cut you know, scrape off the fat from this skin and cut them into noodles. And, yeah, so I ended up doing a dish called pork skin noodles and we do it with, like, the same sauce that's kind of on our, you know, our kind of famous crack noodle dish. It's like a very tamarind-heavy, maggy kind of chilli garlic sauce. And, yeah, we've had that with yabbies and that's, yeah, it's great. What are those other cuts of pork that you're talking about and, and what did you do with them? Oh, you know, like I've done like a a chop 
I've done kind of, you know, there's that kind of classic Vietnamese like pork chop dish. Um, I've done things like that. But the other probably the more interesting things that I've done would be um, like a sour fermented, like it's quite common in Thai and Vietnamese cooking. It's like a fresh fermented sour sausage. Um, of Nem Nong, which I've served before, which is great. We've done a lot of quite a quite a broad range of charcuterie at um at Liberté, and I think a lot of that comes back from my also help helping to have that influence from Must Wine Bar back in the day because you know I worked with um Andre Mahi, who was a great charcutier, and um so I've done like head cheese before as well, which you know you don't really write that on the menu because it sounds kind of gross, but um. <laughs> I've also a lot of terrines with pork, riettes. Um, I did a terrain a terrain recently for Taste Great Southern, and I had some Lindley Valley pork, and I used shoulder and um, minced up some pork, and um, cut up the skin into little tiny cubes, and mixed that with Claudia mushrooms, vermicelli noodles, and stuffed it inside of squid tubes, and then cooked that terrine inside that squid tube, and then sliced it, which was really good. Wow. You briefly mentioned a must wine bar. Take us back to that time. That was your first step into the hospitality sector. What what was it that lured you into the industry? Uh, Well, you know, like I've said before, it was a complete accident and I was just a broke student wanting a job and naively thought that I could get a job washing dishes. And, I, you know, the moment I stepped into that kitchen, I just remember thinking, this is awesome. Like, I just love the the ferocity and the pace of the kitchen and just the people in it. I liked the fact that it was creative and fast-paced and, yeah, that was really kind of it for me. I kind of satisfied, you know, all the areas of my, you know, that my interests that I wanted to, I thought I wanted to do, like I wanted to do art and I wanted to teach and, you know, must definitely I found that I could satisfy you know a lot of that within a kitchen and yeah it just kind of became you know kind of addictive I never left (laughs) you you did your apprenticeship with Russell Blakey Uh, do you do you have any uh, stories of that time working with him and the influence that he had um yeah well Russell obviously is very dear to me in the sense that he was a great mentor and you know when I went into that kitchen I mean I knew nothing about food nothing and I was I was older I was 21 when I started there and I was a kitchen hand for the first you know two years and so I didn't start formally cooking until you know I was about 23 um and I just Russell just was a great guy and so was Andre and Andre was in the kitchen a lot as well. Russell was too back then. He was there, you know, every day. And I guess what I learned from Russell is to respect an ingredient and to, to have restraint. Like, you know, sometimes dishes or dishes are more powerful when you say less. And also just in the way he treated people because, you know, around that time there was that kind of culture of, you know, like Gordon Ramsay and, you know, that kind of fear-based kitchen and, you know, Russell Russell never yelled at anyone and yet he had immense power and respect in what he didn't say and and I think that that's something I've taken 
down the line is that, you know, fear-based kitchens just really aren't that cool and you don't really get the respect and loyalty from your staff when, you, when you're when you an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you spent a bit of time in Melbourne as, as well. What sort of impact did that have on your career? Yeah, well, Melbourne was intense because obviously I'd come from, at, you know, the Perth dining scene at that time was definitely gaining, like, traction, but... Um, yeah, Melbourne to me was, uh, I'd never worked so hard in my life. <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't there long. I was only there, you know, under a year. And But I worked the whole time under Ricardo Mamezo, who at the time had just started doing um, the building. Uh, he had a restaurant, SOS, which was, it was a um, uh, Paul Mathis venture. And it was in this kind of weird location. It was kind of like at the top at the top of an escalator in a shopping centre. And it was a veg aquarium restaurant, which was the first of its kind in Melbourne at the time, but also um, strange because Ricardo obviously is Calabrian and should be eating and cooking pig. <laughs> and it's funny because some of my fondest memories, I mean, I, he was an amazing chef um, in terms of, you know, he had magic hands, the way he plated things and, just the way he extracted flavors and he taught me a lot about extracting flavor at every level in a dish. Um, you know, we never wrote, you know, we ne- never had recipes. He'd just pull you next to him and say, watch. <laughs> and he'd make this dish and you'd just watch. <laughs> and then I'd go away and like, you know, write it down. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, he was an amazing chef, but my, some of my fondest memories from that kitchen were actually when, <laughs> It was in his private life when they were his family were actually slaughtering the pigs and making the salami. And of course, I wasn't allowed to come because um, I was a female, but a couple of the guys in the kitchen were allowed to go. But saying that, a couple of days later, he came into the kitchen with a cake and it was a sponge cake. And there was like a red jam filling through the middle. And he said to me, Amy, I want you to taste this. And it was actually a sponge cake made with pig jam blood. Yeah, and I, he it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I never forget that. And um, he also, you know, he cooked, he bought in bits of the pig and like, you know, just, oh, I just thought, wow, this is the kind of food you should be cooking. <laughs> how, how did you find yourself in Albany? Uh, well, so after Melbourne, I mean, to be fair, I felt pretty burnt out. And I just remember thinking, you know, I could go on and I could travel overseas. And this was like before children. So there was an opportunity to do that. And I just, to be honest, I just wanted to go home. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't want to go back to Perth. So my partner at the time, his mum lived in Albany. And so we were driving back to Perth, kind of en route to Perth through, you know, down the bottom of Australia. And we stopped in Albany to see my partner at the time's mum and just only we're going to stay a week. And um, I've ended up being here for 12 years now. (laughs) What was it about Albany that made you stay there? I think it was the opportunity. And I think it was too, I just really felt a connection to Albany. I just loved everything about the landscape. I loved the climate. Um, I loved the, yeah, the topography. I lo- and, and I loved the produce. You know, everywhere in Albany there's a view, like of the ocean or of something beautiful. 
and you know it's not overly crowded and you can walk on a beach sometimes and there's no one there and I didn't want to spend I've never wanted to be someone that spends two hours a day sitting in congested traffic on a freeway listening to shitty radio like so you know to me it takes me 10 minutes to get to work on a busy day and and I love that and it was around that time I started feeling this you know, urge to, you know, my biological clock got the better of me, put it that way. And I wanted to have children and, or a child. And, um, I just felt like Albany was a really safe place and a beautiful place to raise a child and to also cook. (laughs) Well, Liberté's influence is incredible, which I want to get into. But one of the interesting things that you've done over your career is being a private chef for the likes of Lady Gaga. Are you, do you have any stories about that experience? Yeah, that was um, that was crazy. And like looking back, that was in two thousand and eight. So I was a new mother. I had a, a, a you know a year old baby, and it was at a it was at a point in my life where I had been cooking in Albany, but then I thought, can I be a chef and be a mother at the same time? Is it too hard? How am I going to do this? And so I ended up doing my finishing my degree online. Um, my teaching degree, which I've never used. And I, <laughs> and while I wasn't cooking, I had an absolute compulsion to cook at home. It's kind of like when I think you know you're a cook because when you don't do it, it's all you seem to be doing. And so I had a food blog and I had, and I was cooking all the time. And then someone reached out through my mum and said, Hey, I'm a, I take care of this place, this private retreat on, on this beautiful hill in Nanner up overlooking the ocean, which is it's a house owned by a famous, well, you know, an Albany famous millionaire guy called Paul Terry. And it's this incredible house and now it gets rented out for private guests. And we need a chef. And, you know, I heard your daughter's a chef. Would she be interested? So I kind of went, sure, you know, I'll do a gig. And that ended up in me doing quite a few gigs. And then, of course, because it's such a lucrative place, like obviously it has these VIP clients. And just one, it literally was one night This the manager rang and she said, Amy, we've got a VIP client coming in in a few days. And, you know, I can't tell you who it is, but it's pretty big. And if we send you a list of things that they want to eat, can you find these things and look after them for five days. And so I said, sure. And so I got this list of things that this person liked to eat. And basically I was to live there the whole time. I went home at night time, but basically we'd get there at, you know, six in the morning for breakfast and then lunch and then dinner. And the morning that I rocked up, um, yeah, I, the morning I rocked up, I walked into Matreya and Lady Gaga was sitting out on the porch with a Coke can in her hair and wrapped up like a curl in her hair. And she walked up to me. She shook my hand. She never forgot my name. She was absolutely gorgeous. And I had to sign a massive confidentiality agreement. It was like the size of a you know, dictionary. Um, so I couldn't talk about it for a long time or I was too scared to, but there's nothing bad to report. She, you know, and the first thing she, um, I made her with scrambled eggs because she wanted bacon and eggs and she has her eggs scrambled. And she shouted out the fly screen. She's like, these eggs are fucking great. And we, it was an amazing time. We, I hired a little like uh, wood-fired pizza oven and we taught her 
because my partner was with me as well, who's a chef, and we taught her how to make wood-fired pizza. She wanted to eat marron. We, we ate oysters. She ate oysters. She told cooked like she showed me how to cook pasta. So she said, I've got a couple of favourite pasta dishes. Am I, can I cook them for you? Sure. <laughs> so she cooked like a really beautiful, simple, because obviously she's a, you know Italian-American. Um, she cooked this dish of like just whole tomatoes boiled down in a pot with lots of like fennel seed and fresh fennel, and then that just literally stirred that through pasta, and then she wanted to do one with chicory and pine nuts. And, yeah, she was great. Um there's lots of interesting stories. She wanted to watch an Australian movie and one that was really scary. And what would I suggest? And of course I'm like, well, you need to watch Wolf Creek. So we went and got her Wolf Creek from the local video store <laughs> and we made her a big ice cream Sunday. Like she wanted a big like ice cream trolley with like lollies and stuff. And we made that for her. She was great. Yeah. It was a really, it was a really surreal time. Like we'd go home at the end of the night and all, I just remember all I wanted though was to be back with my daughter because I was just missing her so much because she was so little and I'd get home and be so relieved to have her and be holding her. But then I'd look at my partner and just go, what the hell's happened today? You know, like we're in Albany and we've just been like hanging out with Lady Gaga and she's been talking about Beyonce and like showing us her new telephone film clip and her backup dancers were there and they'd break into dance and her dad was there. It was crazy. <laughs> Have you actually seen her perform? No, but she did actually invite us on the last day. She said, what are you doing? Like, tonight, you can come on the private jet with us if you want and come to the concert backstage. <laughs> and I just was like, I just wanted to see my daughter. <laughs> I was, <laughs> so I was like, that's a really nice offer. Thank you. But um, no, thanks. <laughs> that is extraordinary. <laughs> Tell us about Liberté. You... Um, bought an incredible old build or took over an incredible old building um, and created something quite special. What's the ride been like? Oh, um, the ride has been, uh, it's been incredible. It's been tumultuous. It's been a lesson in how not to run a restaurant at times and, and <laughs> a lesson in, um, I don't know. I always say like having a restaurant is kind of like having a baby. It's kind of like when you have this baby and you look at it and you think, oh, my God, what have I done? And then, you know, you look back six months later and a year later and you're doing it. You're just doing it. And I, and I was thinking the other day when we had our seventh birthday, I thought, I don't know how I found the strength of me to even think I could do something like Liberté. And I don't know sometimes how I started it or how I had the gumption to do it, but I just did and I'm so glad because there's been so many amazing people that I've met through that experience and so many great experiences. I've worked with so many great chefs there with events and just, you know, there's memories there I'll have for life with the staff that have been there and, it's you know, it's, it's a little bit of a surreal situation too. Like, you know, I look back and I think, wow, we've achieved like some really cool shit. And at the time, like when it happens, sometimes it's so overwhelming that you don't even notice or maybe you're too busy, like wondering where you're going to find 30 grand to pay this and that tomorrow. So you, it's hard to take in these successes. But, you know, we have we have achieved a lot. And I'm really thankful that, you know, the people in the industry have embraced us and accepted us because we're not – it's not perfect at times. And, you know, like sometimes in restaurants – 
you get you you do get sick of it. It's like a relationship. It's kind of like you, there's like highs and lows, and there's periods where you can't be bothered and sometimes it's hard to come up with new dishes or, you know, customers lock you into this menu so much that it's hard to like flex a creative muscle as much as you want. And sometimes you just don't want to, but yeah, it, it, it definitely has been a really fun journey. Tell us about that decision process that you made to create this Parisian Vietnamese influenced establishment in, in regional Australia. Well, I, I just, after working as a head chef at a, a kind of a beachside, you know, pub kind of restaurant and working under, like working for someone else, uh, I kind of got to that point where I thought, you know what, I, I'd like to do it on my own terms and to cook the food I really want to cook because I think at the end of the day, doing the food for someone else, I lacked authenticity and I had enough confidence in myself at that point to know that I could cook something that people might want to eat. And, you know, Liberté already, the name of the, the business and the kind of or the style that the, the, the business already had set that groundwork for me to make a kind of transition because it was, you know, obviously a French-looking, very French, Parisian, Baroque-style, you know, space. And so I thought, okay, I'll go in there and I'll do what I know and I won't do anything too avant-garde. Um, I'll just do like a modern take on the French bistro, you know. And I did – the very first Liberté menu was that. And then I just remember thinking, oh, like, oh, this is great, but I don't know, it just lacked – it lacked something for me. And it wasn't until Russell, my old boss, came for take down for Taste Great Southern and he said, you know, let's do an event together. And I think really he was just doing that to help promote me. And – you know, you choose what we do because he's always trusted my ideas in that sense. And so I thought about it and I thought, well, how about we do like, because I really like wanted in Albany, like a really, you know, Southeast Asian, you know, angle going on. I wanted something fresh and I wanted something vibrant and I knew I had the producers around me to do that. And so I kind of said, well, why don't we do like a long table, like French Vietnamese thing? And he said, yeah, okay. And so we did that and I designed this menu with like, you know, garlic and like chili cockles like um, with samphire and we did like crumbed crab rice paper rolls and, yeah, lots of like, yeah, full Vietnamese French kind of, you know, stuff. And it was so successful and so exciting to me and I just thought, oh, this is like where I need to be going. And so that's, you know, from then that's what I did what have been some of the challenges in in diving into that cuisine for while you had a restaurant running? Um, it's mainly mainly people's perception of fusion food, I suppose. Like maybe that's my own fear because I, you know, I never <laughs> fusion was like a really dirty word for a long time. I, I think in the dining scene, and it's kind of like I never wanted to be like that white girl cooking Asian food that and and doing it badly, and so. Um, you know, I really wanted to do justice to both of those amazing cuisines and, you know, French Vietnamese is the kind of ultimate fusion food in a, in a way. And I, and I suppose the other, the other problem, uh, you know, I was worried about initially was just the general public getting it because at the time 
the only places around were doing very traditional kind of, you know, like old school Mediterranean and like, you know, steak sandwiches and very classic pub food. And so here I am coming in to do French Vietnamese, you know, pork and peanut terrine and, you know, it's like fur and, uh, yeah, so it's it was a bit of a risk and I thought, oh, no, you know, this could go so badly. But it went quite well. <laughs> <laughs> because I think at the end of the day, we, you know, the biggest thing that I like to achieve with my food is accessibility. And, uh, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time. I mean, I like food to look beautiful, but it's more important for me to make it taste beautiful. And, you know, I think that most people, if they, even if they don't understand what they're eating, if you present it to them in an accessible way – that's half the work done and then they eat it and go, you know what, this tastes great, I don't care what it is. Was there a moment in time when you felt you'd got a handle on the cuisine and and also consumers had really embraced what you were doing? Yeah, well, I think that kind of started when we got reviewed in the very early days. So Max van Heisen like, came in just like, you know, it, he was down for Taste Great Southern and he just wandered in Um and it was funny because back in the early days, like, you know, I said to my front of house, like, here's a photo of Rob Broadfield and here's a photo of Max. And there was no photos of Max at the time. There was like one sketchy low pixel photo of him on the internet playing poker. And uh, and I'll never forget, I was in the kitchen and back in those days, it was just me and my apprentice in the kitchen and we were there like all the time. And Karen, my um, manager, she kind of came in and she said, hey, Hammer, um, there's like a guy out there and I think he's like, I think he might be the guy you showed me in that photo. And I said, Oh really? She's like, yeah, he's in, he's liking the charcuterie though. And I'm like, what you've already, Oh. And so he'd already been eating it. And she's like, yeah, he's taking photos and stuff. And I was like, Oh great. And so, and so that was Max and Max ended up writing a really great little review based on what he ate and I think Max is great because he's always seen the potential in people and that's what makes him a really great food you know Mm. critic because yeah he's really great at supporting people where he where he feels you know like they've got some promise and so Max has been a great you know um advocate of ours and then Rob Broadfield came in by complete accident because he was down here doing like a review of the region and he said on Twitter where I should I eat and eight people had said go to Liberté and so he remembered Liberté as like the dive it used to be the year before I think he called it a rat with fleas in like his last review and so he came in and had an old-fashioned at the bar and was like holy shit what is this it's like an old-fashioned with proper ice and what good dilution and what there's there's linen napkins and and apparently he like had a well you can read it in the review he has um the pork and peanut terrine and he says to like the waitress at the time he, he said something like my my try-hard chef-o-meter went off the Richter when he saw pork and peanut terrine and he asked the waitress, what's going on with this? And she said, oh, the, the, the chef's doing like a French-Vietnamese thing. And then he went, ah, and he tried it and went, holy hell, this actually tastes really good. Had like sriracha mustard with it. And, yeah, and he ate the pork belly and the profiteroles and or something and he raved about us and it was <laughs> – it was that that review really that like tipped the scale for us because there were people coming already, but all the other people that were maybe deciding to or deciding not to then all jumped ship and kind of came and yeah, 
it's been like pretty busy since then. <laughs> you make your own charcuterie. What's what's the secret to really good charcuterie? Uh, I think good meat is a good start. Um, good quality meat. I think um, seasoning. Good seasoning. You, you know, you know, like with with a like riettes, for example. If that's not seasoned properly, um, and it's not cooked properly. Um, it's really just a massive tangled shitty pork and duck, you know, like, so, but if you handle it right and you whip the fat back into it properly and you season it properly and you treat it with respect at every, you know, every step along the way, you'll get a good product. I mean, I think charcuterie sometimes for me, it's, you know, I shy away from it because I think it's because I'm not a patient person. Like I like food that's fast and I'm really like impatient. And so charcuterie is like, oh, it's going to take ages. <laughs> and, and, but then once I do it, I'm like, oh, this is like, this is pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> this is what real chefs do. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I've, I've definitely, we've definitely had a, a very wide range of charcuterie dishes on the menu. A little earlier, you mentioned about the pork skin noodles that you had created with the offcuts. Can can you tell us about how you you make that and and what the dish ended up being? Originally, it was that dish came from like the pork scrap, the pork offcuts from when we do our pressed pork belly, and so we used to hoard all the pork skin and you know scrape off the fat with a knife, and then you know we've tried lots of things like running it through a pasta machine, but I don't, I don't think you get a, um, as good a result as when you just use a knife, which my chefs hate. Um, and so, yeah, just slicing that pork skin finely with a knife. And the moment that hits the pan, so, you know, that goes in the pan, we just put some garlic and shallot the pan. And then the moment they go in the pan, because that's already come from a steamed pork belly, they're so unctuous. They're like slippery, like beautiful steamed noodles that still have that, you know, the, that texture. And then, you know, we've done them with lots of other proteins, but I like using yabbies. So like some local yabbies just halved or, or I'll poach them and just take out the tail and chuck them in with watercress and Vietnamese mint and like holy basil. And then, yeah, the sauce. And I always like to add just a little bit of parmesan at the end of cooking them because the parmesan kind of ties it all together. And I remember back in Melbourne, Ricardo used to say to me, because it was that seafood restaurant, he was like, you know, people always say you shouldn't put cheese with seafood and, you know, bullshit. And he said, you know, my my mum always adds a little bit of like parmesan in to the end when she's emulsifying the the seafood pasta because just enough that it rounds it out and gives it just that little bit of umami. And that's kind of where when you look at the crack noodle dish we have on and that pork skin noodle dish, that's where the cheese influence comes from because it's not just the Vietnamese French cheese influence, but it's that pasta and kind of putting the finger up to like, you know, I will be putting cheese with my seafood pasta. <laughs> You've uh, had an incredible impact on Albany and WA's uh, food uh, landscape. What is it that you love about what you do? I just love feeding people. <laughs> I love the gesture of cooking. I, I, I love how food levels people and makes, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It's, you know, 
didn't matter who Lady Gaga was either. But when she said she, my, you know, my scrambled eggs were fucking great. And, you know, when she was eating like marron and oysters with me at the table, because she'd insist that, you know, sometimes we ate them too. You're the same person. It doesn't matter who you are. And that's what I, you know, I like about eating and food. And yeah, having a restaurant, it's like you're helping people create experiences and memories and whether that be in the kitchen with the people that you work with day in and day out or with the people that are coming in and having an experience, I like being able to be part of that. Well, Amy, as ever, it's always entertaining catching up with you. We've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear some of your story. Uh, Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. No worries. Thanks for having me. This is The Crackling a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.